And a very good evening to you. Welcome to the Catholic View. I'm Sheila Pirch. Thank you so much for being here with us. Coming up in today's broadcast, being a Thursday, we bring you our feature on women as we focus on gender equality, women entrepreneurs and women farmers tackle climate change. That's coming up a little bit later in the broadcast. For now, though, Mahadi Butelez is on standby to bring you some of the stories that made headlines in Africa and beyond today. Listen to Radio Veritas, 576 AM, for a change. Bringing you your news headlines from Africa and beyond African Vaccination Week, Buharu Economic Policy and official opening of the Mall of Africa. Good evening, I am Mahadi Butelezi. In his homily at today's morning mass at Casa Santa Marta, Pope Francis commented on the day's first reading taken from the Acts of the Apostles. Pope Francis said that the Holy Spirit is the Church's protagonist and that right from the very start it was the Holy Spirit that helped the Apostles evangelize. It is the Holy Spirit that gives strength in both bad and good times. African countries are commemorating the sixth edition of the African Vaccination Week from the 24th to the 30th of April 2016. African Vaccination Week provides an opportunity for countries to strengthen immunization services and systems through advocacy, education, communication tools and activities. The theme for African Vaccination Week 2016 is Close the Immunization Gap, Stay Polio-Free. Yvonne Morgan, Director of CAFCA, the Catholic Healthcare Association of the Southern African Catholic Bishops' Conference, attended a meeting in Rome ahead of African Vaccination Week, where participants raised the importance of HIV testing on children be done together with vaccination. Here is Elvira Robeck, Communications Liaison Officer for CAFCA. CAFCA um, really promotes having children vaccinated, um, you know, following the, the different ages that they're at. And it's something that um, we envision every single child in South Africa to have access to, to have access to free vaccination. So, you know, they're getting all of them. But um, our director, Yvonne Morgan, has just come back from a conference in um, Rome about um, children living with HIV. And one thing um, that Kathka would love to see is that at the time that children are getting their vaccines, that they also get tested for HIV because there are still so many children that have HIV that have never been tested. So something that um, we're definitely going to look at and you know see how we can work with the Department of Health and anybody else involved is to get children tested at the same time. But what stops these children from being tested uh, from age for HIV and AIDS at birth? I think um, it's just not happening. There seems to be 
Um, one is the stigma around it and, you know, not having to um, declare your HIV status. So I think a lot of, you know, doctors and housewives, when they're delivering children, they don't actually know that the parents are HIV positive. A lot of parents themselves don't know that they are um, HIV positive. And also sometimes the transmission only comes, you know, only happens after birth through breastfeeding or something like that. So, you know, obviously, you know, if they could be tested at birth and be put on, you know, the medication straight away, that would be, um, you know, number one prize. Um, but because they can also still get it, on, you know, later on in life, every time they have um, their vaccines to get uh, tested as well. Um, a lot of our mobile clinics and our, um, you know, the normal clinics, hospitals, um, they do offer um, vaccinations, um, obviously, when they go out to and they do their outreach. And, you know, it is important that... Um, we can try and, you know, get more access to it because like any other nonprofit organization, our biggest problem is obviously funds. So a lot of our clinics and um, hospitals don't have the funds to purchase um, the vaccinations. Um, you know, the government um, distributing is not always on time and there yeah. can sometimes be problems. So what we would really love to see is that, you know, there's a, a fantastic working relationship between government and all other um, healthcare providers, that they provide the vaccines on time, that, you know, they're making sure that every single child is uh, vaccinated because there's no reason why a child should die of an illness that is, you know, clearly preventable. In Egypt, Coptic churches who follow the Julian calendar are celebrating Holy Week. In view of Easter, greetings and good wishes are expressed to the Copts by representatives of institutions. In the imminence of the Christian solemnity, also pastoral initiatives flourishing in the large North African country. In recent days, some Coptic Orthodox priests of the Coptic Orthodox Diocese of Minya, Upper Egypt, decided to leave their parishes to celebrate moments of prayer in the streets, in cafes and in public places in order to announce the passion and the resurrection of Christ to the many baptized who do not attend churches and sanctuaries even on the occasion of the liturgical solemnities. A soldier suspected of killing 11 people at a military barracks in Cape Verde has been arrested after a 24-hour manhunt. Manuel Silva, a Marine, was arrested on Wednesday in the capital prior while driving a stolen taxi, police told VOA's Portuguese to Africa service. They said he offered no resistance. The government of the West African island nation had said a disgruntled soldier was suspected of killing eight soldiers and three civilians, including two Spanish nationals at a military base 45 kilometers from prayer. It declared two days of national mourning starting on Wednesday. Despite the global drop in the price of oil, Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has refused to allow the country's currency to devalue, leading to a shortage of foreign exchange. Businessmen and consumers are feeling the impact as the country deals with a severe fuel shortage. Chris Stein reports from Lagos. People are feeling the heat in Africa's largest city, and it's not just because of the weather. Motorists are waiting hours to buy scarce fuel. 
and prices of everything from snacks to plastic bags are rising. Inflation hit an annual rate of 13% in March, an almost four-year high. In market prices, the food stuff, even the house rent, even the ordinary water we are drinking, everything has increased, so we are feeling it. Most of Nigeria's consumer goods are imported. Instead of devaluing the Naira, the central bank has restricted trading in foreign currencies. That means traders either cannot get dollars to buy imports, or they pay inflated prices for their foreign currency. Gasoline is a key import that has been affected. Motorists are waiting hours to fill their tanks. This scarcity alone is a problem. I, if you know the area all the way where I come to look for fuel here, it's very far off because of the scarcity. Some motorists resort to buying black market fuel of dubious quality at inflated prices, and the fuel scarcity is having a snowball effect, leading to higher costs for everything, driving inflation. Economists say devaluation would cause inflation to spike temporarily, then stabilize and curb the reliance on expensive black market dollars. But Buhari insists devaluation has not worked in the past. His goal is long-term, to grow local industry. Some of his supporters are willing to wait it out. I think it's good policy because uh, it's just a matter of uh, a few, maybe a year or some months. You will see everything will be okay for everybody. The question is, how long will Nigerians wait? Chris Stein, Lagos. Although some voters may be disappointed by the lack of alternatives, Africa's longest-serving president, Theodoro Obiangwema Mbasogo of Equatorial Guinea, is widely expected to win another term in office. Results are expected this week from Sunday's vote. The Obiang family has ruled the country since independence in 1968. The current president overthrew his uncle in a coup in 1979. According to 2014 United Nations figures, Equatorial Guinea is one of Sub-Sahara's Africa's top oil and natural gas producers. That coupled with its small population means the country has the highest per capita gross domestic product in Africa. And finally, despite tight household budgets, thousands of shoppers are flocking to the new Mall of Africa in Midrand, Johannesburg. The mall, which is the size of 78 rugby stadia, has officially opened its stores for business with thousands of shoppers taking advantage of specials made up of both local and international brands. According to Mall of Africa's website, the mall is South Africa's largest shopping mall ever built in a single phase. It is home to over 300 shops, many of which are flagship stores. And these have been your news from Africa and beyond. Have yourselves a very good evening. I am Mahdi Butelezi. My thanks goes there to Mahadi Butelezi for bringing us up to date with some of the stories that made headlines in Africa and beyond today. This is still the Catholic View coming to you on Radio Veritas 576 AM, otherwise on 870 DSTV Audio Bouquet. And I'm Sheila Birch. Thank you once again for being here with us. Coming up next is our feature on women. Women 
on the African continent are generally treated as second-class citizens. They do not enjoy the same positions as men. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful. Otherwise, you will threaten the man. Some men refuse to invest in the education of their daughters because they say they will soon get married. Because I am female, I'm expected to aspire to marriage. I'm expected to make my life choices, always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. But why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage and we don't teach boys the same? We raise girls to see each other as competitors, not for jobs or for accomplishments, which I think can be a good thing, but for the attention of men. Feminist, a person who believes in the social, political and economic equality of the sexes. Women on the Forefront, a program dedicated to women who are making a difference. Welcome back. This evening we focus on gender equality, women entrepreneurs and women farmers tackle climate change. Empowering women and girls is a key target of the Sustainable Development Goals agreed by world leaders last year. It's also at the heart of a new campaign to break down gender barriers everywhere. Launched by Michael Moller, head of the UN in Geneva, and Ambassador Pella Amomoto of the United States, Geneva Gender Champions calls on influential decision makers in the Swiss city to promote gender parity at work and in the field. Daniel Johnson spoke to both Mr. Moller and Mrs. Hamamoto. He began by asking the U.S. ambassador why the issue is so close to her heart. It sort of goes back to a long-standing sense of wanting to battle injustice. And I grew up in a very male-dominated household. And then I basically chose to pursue very male-dominated professions. Yeah, let's uh, just go into that. You worked in the energy sector, the telecom sector, is that right? Absolutely. So I was an engineer for a while, worked in the energy sector, working on hydroelectric power plants. I then moved to the telecommunications sector. I spent about a decade in investment banking. So, you know, it presented some challenges. Not having the same kind of support structure that a lot of my male colleagues had, role models, you know, having to deal really with some discrimination, the whole gamut over the years, just really instilled in me a sense of wanting to do something about that. But it's interesting because I always focused on addressing this injustice with more of a philosophy of how should I succeed by playing the game as opposed to how should I work to level the playing field. And it wasn't until I came here and really engaged sort of more broadly and more deeply in these longstanding gender issues when I really changed my focus and the way I wanted to address these issues. And you're in a good position to do that because you are the ambassador here at the United Nations in Geneva and you're responsible for hundreds of diplomats. So how has it concretely changed how you do things? I think we are changing our day-to-day -day activities. First of all, we've been working really across our mission to try to help raise awareness and really bring this international Geneva community together around these issues because these types of problems that we're dealing with really takes 
all of us, you know, men and women, we all come from different backgrounds, different perspectives, but we have to come together. And the Geneva community is coming together around these issues. So the fact that we engage on so many diverse issues daily here in Geneva gives us this broad reach where we can really have an impact in developed and developing countries. Can we just talk about accountability? Because you need clear goals in any project and accountability is, is obviously key. So at what point does the project, the initiative Geneva Gender Champions, become accountable? So another one of the fundamental premises that we built this around is accountability. This has been embraced by everyone. It's basically viewed as one of the key measurements of success is to be able to basically evaluate, measure, track, monitor, and then report in a public forum how we're doing on our commitments. Can I turn to you, Mr. Muller? Why this issue above all others? How important is gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls in the Sustainable Development Goals? Well, it's not an issue above all others. It is a important issue, a very transversal issue for the SDGs. I don't think, and most of my colleagues, certainly those who are in the forefront of trying to get these SDGs implemented, we're all of the opinion that they will not happen unless we get the other half of humanity on board. So let's talk about practical measures. How do you become a Geneva <coughs> Gender Champion? You write to either me or the ambassador and tell us that you want to become a Gender Champion. And here are the three pledges and the three initiatives that you commit to, and off they go. It's easy. Well, you heard it here, right to the DG at the United Nations in Geneva, Ambassador Hamamoto, and they will send you the information you need. Alternatively, there is a website. There and is we'll, also, yeah. we, you can always just have a look at it on your favourite search engine. Can we talk about an idea that came up at a recent library talk here at uh, the UN, there are plenty of them, whether the SDGs are <clears> good for women? And one of the speakers said that one of the major tests would be for rural women, and they are the real ones who need empowerment. How are we going to reach out to them with this kind of initiative? It's an interesting point, and it's a very important one. I actually had the same conversations yesterday with about 300 young people, all interns and the different organizations here in Geneva, who asked the same question. Clearly, when you talk about rural women, they need to know about the SDGs. And one of the interesting things that David Nambaro, the Sector General's coordinator for the 2030 Agenda, is doing is to put in place systems that will ensure that about 2 billion people will know about the SDGs by the end of 2017. We have a universally agreed set of rules that empowers and makes people responsible for their own destiny, if you want. So it empowers people to actually take action and take responsibility, not just for themselves, but for their communities as well. And we, the system, is there to help them. That is where the big change has happened. We are not going to be the ones doing it for them. We will help best practices, financing, information, narrative, etc., can you maybe finally just tell me what the level of civil society involvement was in this Geneva Gender Champions initiative in terms of getting the input from the widest possible spectrum of people? I don't know who'd like to take that one. The civil society piece is really important to us for a lot of reasons. One, you know, sort of back to the question of accountability, and they help hold us accountable. But they bring such great, valuable perspectives to how we should be approaching these problems, how we should be working together. We're also interested in having the private sector involved. And so it's something that we all need to come together. We're pushing each other. We're holding each other accountable. We're, we're looking for creative solutions to some longstanding problems. But there seems to be 
a uniting, really, of focus and of effort around these issues that's really wonderful to see. And I, I'll tell you, it's about time because we've all seen progress, but we all know also that the progress has been way too slow. South African Catholic Irisha Luyanga is a wife and mother of two. She's also the CEO of Redefine Human Capital. Irisha is one of the founding members of an NGO, Visions of Joy, which provides basic needs to underprivileged youth as well as women empowerment. She uses this as a vehicle to facilitate infrastructure projects that aim to effect systemic change in underserviced communities. Here is a brief look at Irish's work. My first job was at the age of 11. I actually worked for, I worked for Salon. So my background is I'm actually from, from Durban, from a community called Sydenham. And uh, growing up, I went to St. Anne's um, Catholic Church, not sure if you know St. Anne's. But um, I, I got a job at, at a Salon at the age of 11. And that's how I managed to, to pay for my schooling and to help my mother as well. Interesting, interesting, hey? And I hope that at that time nobody called that um, child exploitation, right? Not at all, because at, at that time it's more about helping an auntie and you get pocket money. So, um, and, that's, and that's how I actually got the money or how I was paid. <laughs> yeah, no, all right, sweet. But now coming back to what you do today, redefining human capital. Talk to us about this. Um, redefining human capital was started about three years ago. Um, we saw a gap in the markets just in terms of professionals looking to to change to change jobs. And uh, what what we found out was um, that a lot of the professionals that we came into contact with, you know, felt like they weren't living out their purpose. So in terms of the way we work, we really get to know our candidates very well. We get to understand what the aspirations are from a purpose perspective. And um, even though we place these individuals in corporate South Africa, we, we still have a relationship with them um, up to six, six months to a year just to make sure that they settled in their job, just to make sure that the orientation has gone well. And um, it's quite ironic because a lot of our, our candidates then become our clients because then get promoted in the organization. Um, at Redefine as well, we're also running with, with learnerships. So we're currently on a project to work with 80 learnerships um, and these are unemployed youth that um, between the ages of 18 and 35 that will take through a process of, of training where they will get an NQF4 level um, in you know office administration skills. And after the, the training with us, we'll then place them within corporates as well. Talk to us about what developed this passion to work with youth, especially unemployed youth and empowering women. I've always had um, a servant leadership approach to to work, and I think that's why I got into to human resources because I always want to help people. So, in terms of um, young people, I've naturally always just mentored mentored youth. So currently, I've got mentees. I mean, from university graduates all the way up to a pilot, a female pilot that I mentor, and I'm just passionate about them succeeding. And um, a lot of them always say to me, well, why do you do this? Why do you, why, why do you take time to talk to us and to find out what our aspirations are and to find out how we're doing? And, you know, for me, the answer is I wish someone had done that for me when I was your age. And 
by having this approach to, to helping young people, I just find it helps them to create a strategy for, for their lives. Um, a few months ago, I went, um, I went back to KwaZulu-Natal on holiday, and I just you know did a walk around in, in the old neighborhood that I came from, and I just saw a lot of youth that didn't really have um, a plan or a goal for what they wanted to do. And, and that's really where I said I wanted to have a structured approach in terms of mentoring and coaching youth. So hence, I'm, I'm now working on this project to place 80 unemployed youth in, in corporates. How involved are you when it comes to women empowerment and exactly what aspect of women empowerment do you look at? I was very fortunate to, to be invited um, by a friend of mine, Hema, um, to a mentoring walk. When Hema arranges the mentoring walk, there's about um, two to 300 mentees and, and mentors. And the mentors would be women within corporate South Africa, be CEOs. It would be a very senior women across different diverse fields. And each mentor would have at least two to three mentees that they would start a relationship at the mentoring walk and then have a relationship with the mentee for at least 12 to 18 months. So in terms of women empowerment, from, from that group of mentees that I st- first started four or five years ago, um, the group has just grown and grown. And what we do is we meet quarterly just to have peer mentoring. So they each mentee mentors each other, and then I mentor them as a group. Um, and th- and that's, that's the work from a, a woman empowerment stance that, that I'm really focused on, young, young women either entering the workforce or, or leaving university. What would be your advice to women, seeing that women in leadership position only occupy uh, plus minus 6%, what would be your advice to women as to see more women in leadership positions and to see more women being equally uh, treated in the work environment? My advice is the cake is big enough for all of us to share. So as women, women shouldn't feel like they've reached the, the glass ceiling in terms of in terms of corporate, I mean, if we look at our boards locally, our executive boards, if we look at boards internationally, the boards are comprised mostly of men. And I think for a lot of women that they get onto the boards, um, they should be helping younger women and showing them, you know, the ropes of how to to get to that level. So I would definitely encourage women to not to have a glass ceiling and not to take limitations on themselves in terms of their own career aspirations. And yes, you know, the most amazing thing about women is that we um, have so many different functions. So as a mother, as, you know, having a career and being goal-driven, my advice is you can have work-life balance. You can have all of that working um, and, and functioning and still being a woman. I was actually saying to... Um, a colleague of mine, um, you know, who works in quite a male-dominated environment, I said to her, the, the best thing about working on, on a board or quite a senior level, take yourself into the meeting. I mean, take your femininity into the meeting as well. Because, you know, within that space, if you're working within a, a typically male-dominated environment, you know, males are missing with the left side of their brain. And as a woman coming through with your own personality, um, you know, being feminine, a lot of sort of right brain is used and a lot of interesting conversations are then had. Um, and, and, and I think that there's 
women and men complement each other. So the glass ceiling should not, you know, kind of make women feel like they, they can't get to the next level. Now, seeing that your company is now expanding into the African continent, South Africa is quite a liberal country when it comes to speaking out um, about human rights, when it comes to talking about women equality, women's um, dignity and so forth. But expanding into the rest of Africa, how do you see that? Do you see any challenges, perhaps? In terms of from a recruitment perspective, I mean, you know, we've worked um, across Africa in terms of recruitment, and there's actually a lot of women professionals um, in in that space. So I haven't really found a gap in terms of recruiting a, a specific skill and not finding a woman in 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 that field. I mean, even as technical fields in terms of IT and engineering, there's actually a lot of African women across the continent that, that has that skill and that are all working in, in senior positions. So I definitely do see the shift from a corporate perspective. Yes, in, in terms of the villages and in terms of um, where in areas where boys would be afforded opportunity to go to school and, and girls kept at home. You know, for me, it's more just encouraging the parents, you know, um, to say you have to also consider your daughter and also send your daughter to a school. Um, and there, there has been a, a slight, there has been a change, there has been a shift. Um, but obviously, I would like to see more of a shift in, in terms of more young women going, going to school. I know there are, there are various projects at the moment. It's, um, in Uganda, there's a project called the Girl Power Project. And I mean, their, their tagline is 100 girls can change the future of Africa forever. forever. So there are, there are programs currently you know, to empower girls to reach their fullest potential. But it really started in the family unit where the shift needs to happen with the parents and, and sending your girl child to school. Well, Irisha, thank you once again for talking to us right here on The Catholic View. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, just thank you so much for, for interviewing me. And, and like I said, I think for, for me, is, as, as women, we shouldn't limit ourselves. Um, we, we can do all that God has blessed us to do and to be. And um, I think the time now for women to to rise up to that next level, to elevate in whatever areas or spheres of their life, the time is now. Um, yeah, that's it for me. Good farming practices and solar energy have helped to save a women's agricultural cooperative in Senegal. The 65 members were about to give up on growing vegetables due to soil degradation caused by low rainfall. However, investments by the UN's International Fund for Agricultural Development, IFED, has brought solar-powered pumps and a steady supply of water to their community. Sam Cole has the story. Here in southeast Senegal, these women are gathering the produce from their flourishing vegetable garden. But only a few years ago, they were struggling to grow anything at all due to soil degradation and lack of water. An effect of climate change, says Iwin Daiwa, president of this women's cooperative. Before it was not easy. Due to lower rainfall, the soil became degraded and there was no more land to cultivate. We were going to move away, but now thanks to solar energy, we have enough water to develop our land. This solar energy is used to pump water from the wells, ensuring that the 65 women in Awas cooperative have a steady supply for irrigation. 
This is part of a $30 million investment by the Global Environment Facility and the UN's International Fund for Agricultural Development. Working in a quarter of the country, they are improving irrigation systems and water management and introducing farming practices more suited to the climate, which is having a major impact on the communities, says the project's Abibulaya Ba. With the adoption of good farming techniques that are more suitable to the changed climate, the project has helped improve soil fertility, which has led to an increase in productivity, permitting the community to improve their standard of living, their health, as well as their nutrition. One technique to adapt to the changing climate is to diversify production. It makes for a more varied diet, and there is less chance of going hungry if one crop fails. Now with access to so much water, these women can grow a variety of vegetables. And they have also started fish farming, a new business that provides them with a good source of protein and another product to sell at the market. To make the most out of their yields, the women have also learned how to process their own food. Iowa says they can earn more and at the same time cut down on waste. Before, parts of the garden crops were not sold and were likely to rot. But by processing products like tomato sauce or jams, we were able to make a profit and create a fund to finance other activities. With this extra money, farmers can buy livestock and other foods. Iwa, who was widowed five years ago, can now look after the 21 members of her extended family, including eight children and eight grandchildren. We have had record yields and this allowed us to rebuild our house and buy sheep. Each woman in the group has at least four sheep and some have bought oxen, others furniture. This project has had a very concrete impact on our lives. In a nearby village, more suitable crops are helping other farmers like Ajahn Dao make the most of their limited resources. Here they are now growing a fast-maturing rice variety that can thrive with less rain. Good agricultural practices and technologies have saved us. Now we have less good land, but with seeds that have short cycle and high yields, instead of farming many hectares, we farm a few and still get a large production. Ira and Adja are amongst more than 32,000 families who have improved their nutrition, health and income through these changes. And more importantly, they are now better equipped to face an uncertain future and to cope with the challenges of a changing climate. Sam Cole. This has been Catholic Views Women Feature, a space where we focus on women who are making a difference. Should you wish to contribute, feel free to send me an email, shayla at radioveritas.co.za. Thank you so much for listening. I want to leave my footprints on the sands of time Know there was something bad and something bad I left behind When I leave this world, I'll leave no regrets Leave something to remember so they won't forget I was here
This has been Thursday's edition of The Catholic View, a program produced and presented by Sheila Pirsch for Radio Veritas. And that brings me up to time. Hope you enjoyed the broadcast. Remember, we will be back again tomorrow evening at the same time. Until then, God bless you and ciao, ciao. I'm Sheila Pirsch. Thank you.